Are you about to start a business? If the answer to this question is yes, this is a must-listen-to podcast. My name is Gareth Armstrong, and for over a decade, I've had the opportunity to get close to, rub shoulders with, interview, and learn from business leaders, entrepreneurs, big and small, local and international. After hundreds of hours of interviewing, I can with a certainty say this is a massively worthwhile conversation to listen to before starting your business. This podcast is a conversation between myself and Pepe Marais, one of the co-founders of Joe Public, a true blue South African success story, but with ups and downs and nuances and their accompanying lessons and insights that only Pepe could share. There is real value in this conversation, whether you are a freelancer or you have a startup that you're really pushing towards scale. I urge you to listen carefully, listen with a notebook in front of you if you can, and listen to it over and over again. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. I always find titles so interesting, mm. like leadership. We think we're leaders when we have a big title, and I think it's the opposite. So I think I'm a creative being, I'm an entrepreneur first and foremost. Mm. And I'm striving to be an exceptional business leader. You've just recently released a book, and we must chat a little bit about that as we're, we're discussing. But what I have heard by the grapevine, by, by the by, is that you are quite an entrepreneur. And so mm. talk to us a little bit about that. You know, your businesses often feel like your own child. Mm. You give birth to it. It starts with an idea, a little glimmer in your eye. Um, and then it grows into something. So, so our business, Joe Public, is now 20 years old. And we're actually fully stepping into service of our business. So I suppose we all got our various titles. My business partner is actually, we founded the business with me as a CEO. I'm in charge of our product. I'm product obsessed, which is a creative product in a creative industry. Mm. And I would say we co-lead, but not even as two people, as a team of people, we, we co-lead. And it's, it's a very interesting experience. I think there's two ways to business. It's sort of a dictatorial one person that takes the lead or there's team leadership, but you need something that unites you. And I think we've got something special going. But first and foremost, I'm an entrepreneur. I started working at the age of 12 and I haven't stopped. So you started your own business. You were one of those the lemonade stand types. Yeah. Is that correct? When I speak at schools, I often go and I say, so who's doing extra little jobs? Who's got a side hustle on the weekends for a bit of extra cash? And normally it's like one in 25. Mm. And I know that those would be the entrepreneurs. So I started working at the age of 12, delivering newspapers to generate my own income, to have access to money, to have the things that I aspire to have in my life. And I pretty much worked Mondays to Saturdays in the mornings for two hours. And then on the weekends, I worked at a cafe. And that evolved into selling, not lemonade. I should have, if I was more conscious, then I wouldn't have sold <laughs> fizzy drinks, but mm. I sold Cokes and Fantas and and T-shirts. I printed and designed T-shirts. Oh, really? So I sold those on beaches in, in, in the Western Province area, Cape Town, Gordons Bay, Somerset West. And that was the beginning of it. Yeah. Mm. So you started doing this to earn extra money, but people don't just do things to earn money. Mm. What was behind that, do you think? Or was it actually just a money thing? So, look, I know today... The purpose of business, in my view, which is what my book's about, is completely opposite to making money. Mm. I think the norm in the world is still 
we're in business to make money and to serve our shareholders' pockets. That's the norm. That's how I experience the world we live in. I disagree with that world. I think there is a better way. But back then, it was definitely driven by by wanting to live up to the Joneses. So, okay, so, so I'm always conscious of saying I grew up poor because I think there's many layers to not having much in life. But we didn't have much. We did a house. It was mostly a rental house. And, and money for me was a way to afford the things my friends had, be it a motorbike or, or be it a fancy stereo system. Mm. So I think the early motivation, if I had to think consciously, logically about it, could have been money. But then I also think there's something creative in creating even money. Mm. So it might even have been just that sort of freedom, that freedom I'm just thinking on the spot now, but the f- the freedom of creating, of doing something. Because when I think back of the T-shirts, that was after I've fallen into art and getting into printmaking and t- designing your own T-shirt, printing it. I don't think that that whole little thing just happened because I wanted to make money out mm. of it. There was a real enjoyment in the process and seeing what it becomes and then seeing the, the experience of people actually liking what you create. And then the money becoming a byproduct. But I think the original motivation might have been linked more to, I want to be rich. Mm. Through my journey, I discovered that's not really the truth. But I think that's a conscious truth. Well, what's interesting about it is that I think that there are two sides to money. And there's an Mm. innocence to money. And then there is also the other side, which is there's a a power to money that can corrupt. And on the innocent side, it, it is. It's just... You want to strive for more, and you realize that money is one of the mechanisms for that. Much like money would be a mechanism, like you described, to be able to express your artistic freedom in a particular way. And so perhaps when we're young, it's a little bit more naive and a little bit more innocent than what money can also be once we get older and a little bit more layered and experienced. Quickly, I'd smile because you say something that I'm very passionate about. And working with a brand like NetBank for five years now, this two sides to money is absolute truth. The unfortunate thing is, is the one, you know, it's almost like bad news. Money is the root of all evil. Mm. That is the one side. But the other side of money is that money is the root of all good. And my take on money, which is why money in terms of wealth is probably my, the thing I value second in my life. Because I know what you can do, the good you can do with money. So it just becomes a mechanism to do greater good. And I'm very clear on that. And, and, and maybe, maybe that little journey started even at that stage because it's interesting if I start thinking of what I've always done with money, I've always been more in service of more than myself with money. Which is interesting because there may be an individual or two who are listening to this, mm. including myself maybe a few years ago, mm who would have said, but if you so-called are doing good, it feels like you're giving money away. But mm. actually, if you're creating value and adding value to someone, often that can translate into an opportunity to be remunerated, whatever that remuneration, mm. whatever form that remuneration takes. It's interesting when you have these conversations, different thoughts just get triggered. So the first thought that gets triggered is, I used to play for short stint, but I played guitar on Green Market Square in Cape Town. Part of doing that was to get income to buy my art material at the art school I was studying. But I never went into that endeavor going, today I want to make a hundred rand. 
or 200 rand. Mm. I would go into that endeavor playing my heart out, putting my hat in front of myself, and then the hat would fill up naturally based on the intensity of my passion and the way I performed. Mm, fantastic. So even that experience gave me a different take on money. To this day, I believe that you are earning, whatever you're earning right now is completely fair in terms of the value you add. And often we don't see beyond the, you know, we tend to add one rand value for one rand mm. expected. Mm. But if you can step into a notion of adding 20 or 50 rand or 100 rand, irrespective of the return, it naturally comes back. So even when I was working before I started my own business, my natural way of being was just to pour my heart into what I did, irrespective of what came back. And long term, in the moment, maybe the salary didn't match it. But if I look back where I am today, that behavior got me to where I am today. And that's the first thought that came up for me. The second one you said was, what I'm intrigued about is that the companies that are actually adding factually more value to the world are supposed to be non-profit organizations. And then a lot of the companies who are adding less value to the greater world are supposed to be highly profitable. Now, that's another thing where I realized, mm. well, the system is upside down because in my book, for adding that level of value to the greater society, you should make a lot more money. And that's, I always find that interesting. I mean, and, and, and hopefully these are the things that the world is leading us towards is beyond the self-service of a few people. Do you see it in the world? Do you feel like the world is shifting? In, is shifting? Yeah, I'm sensing it. There's more talk about it. There's maybe not action, but at least talk leads, you know, the thought, mm. then the word, and then the action follows. Mm. And maybe on a micro level of, as a person, maybe it's easier to, to act upon. But if you're in an organism as big as a country, how long does it take to shift? And if you're then at a world at 7 billion people, I'm getting a sense at least the talk has started. I mean, we're talking about it now. There's more talk globally about business having greater purpose. People don't understand what it means yet, but there's talk. So I think maybe in our lifetime we start seeing a shift. I hope so too. The, just as you're speaking, though, I, I'm hopeful that it doesn't become corrupted. Um, reference or analogy to these individuals who call themselves social entrepreneurs. Mm. And I'm not sure about social entrepreneurs mm. just yet. Uh, it feels like a, a nice way to uh, you know, put some kind of, um, what's the nicest way to put it? You know, putting lipstick on a pig. Mm. And I'm not 100% sure about mm. social entrepreneurship just yet. I don't know if you've got a thought or two about it. What I've found is when I do things with the intent of getting something back, even if I don't say a word about it, but I know what my intent inside myself is. Yeah, your truest, my truest, truest intent. I know, yeah. you, we all know. You know, they say we've got our public life, our personal life, and then we've got our private life. The sort of, or secret almost, mm. your secret. Mm. The, the stuff that your wife don't even really know about. A little conversation inside yourself. We know when we're behaving to get gain. I know that every time that I went into doing something, in service of myself, even if I pretend to do it in service of others. I mean, a great example would be I had a non-profit AIDS organization. I did a show once a year 
called Rock for AIDS. On the outside, it looked like I'm such a such a good guy. You're a philanthropist. I'm like a philanthropist on a small scale because it would only net 10,000 rand for a huge effort. Mm. The truth behind that entire endeavor was my ego. I wanted to have the opportunity to play music on a stage. And that's actually what I was after, looking cool. Mm. Net effect, 10,000 rand given to a small AIDS orphanage once a year. When I found greater purpose in my life and I shifted a subtle shift, very subtle, it's almost not noticeable from that self-serving, which from the outside looks like service, to true service. The net effect went up within one year on the same effort to 110,000 rand and the next year to over a million. Mm. I mean, that, that's profound. It's like a hundred times improvement yeah. on a net effect financially on exactly the same input. From a small little shift. From a small shift that only... I can validate because no one from the outside will tell the difference. People would look at the one guy go, he's so amazing, look what he's doing. It's the same person, but inside myself, I know the one was serving my ego, the other one was stepping into service of others. So I think the system, whatever the system is in the universe, the greater consciousness, whatever it is, it knows. It knows. When you're doing things to, to serve yourself, then you can ask, well, why are so many people making so much money for not adding value? Yeah, if, and if they're corrupt to the core. Because money is not the only measure of wealth. Mm. And I learned that at a conference in Toronto in Canada, and I was fascinated by it. You know, there's more than one form of wealth, and that's why you get a lot of people with a lot of money that's very unhappy. And that's how I also figured that one out, because mm. I was also intrigued. I thought, but if that's how it works, then why are there so many people making so much money for being corrupt? Because they have to sleep with themselves at night, and they have to live within themselves, and I'm not sure if the inner person is as happy as the outer person looks. Mm. That's my view. It's a very interesting view on money and the power that it has over us mm. and, and who we can end up becoming. Mm. I think there's another part that I want us to go, and it's probably a difficult place for us to go, and that is someone is listening to this who is saying, but, but guys, I, I, you know, I can't afford to send my children to school, mm. let alone think about the virtues and vices mm. of, of money. What do we say to someone like that uh, who has a very good reason to earn something, but their business is just not, not turning? But even if I take our own business, it's 20 years old. It only started yielding a significant financial return after 16 years. 16 years. Yes. And that's why I'm saying from the outside, it always looked easy. We earned probably market salary less 30% for the first 10, 11 years of that business. But then why would you be doing it? Because... You're still earning enough income. So, of course, if your business is not giving you income to survive on, like some form of a living expense, mm. then your business is not worth having. Mm. And that's a truth that people need to hear. You, you, you need to understand that. You, know, you can't be in business and hang on to it for five, six, seven years if it's not at the very least giving you back a means to survive. Mm. But that journey has been a long and arduous journey. In 2009, we were bankrupt. We restarted. Wow. Um, Re restarted as Joe Public. As Joe Public. Joe Public, we sold our business to international conglomeration in 2001. 
the purpose of that sale was not to make money. That I know for a fact. Okay. My personal thing that excited me was my mother would be proud because mm. um, we want to make our parents proud. The other half was to take our really revolutionary takeaway advertising model international. And as it turned out, we never really made money out of the deal. Mm. But we had eight years that we then belonged to an international conglomeration where the lesson, the eight-year lesson in essence was that it was all about money. So every single monthly meeting would be about the money. Mm -hmm. It was never about the product. It was never about the service. It was never about the happiness of the people, the human capital in the business. And that must have killed you because you were saying you're product obsessed. I'm product obsessed. I'm people obsessed. I'm actually people obsessed first mm. because the better your people, the better your product. So it starts with the people. In fact, the better your environment, the better the people, the better the product. And um, so there's a bit of a pipeline. So, so that slowly, slowly sort of, and I, I don't even actually, I don't want to say it slowly killed me because it didn't. It was just a deep learning. Mm. So I suppose I've got this learning now and this belief, and you can't take me off this belief because I experienced it. Yeah, it's an aha moment of sorts, actually. Seeing the face of the other side and understanding through experience that that actually doesn't work and then turning fully to what you believe is the right way and then seeing it work. And seeing the result of it. That's beautifully put. And then also, I suppose... These are the things you can only really get through deep experience. You might read it in a book. You might listen to this interview. But it might not be your time to really get it. Mm. That was a fundamental point in my life that was a gift to me to really get how business should work in my view. I know there might be someone else with a complete opposing view, which is neither right nor wrong, but my view. And I was meant to get it. I mean, beauty is in the eye of the beholder is, is something I heard a thousand times through my life. But about five years ago, I really got it. I was just meant on that day to really see an experience and experience something that went like, okay, I get it. I'm suddenly curious what happened five years ago. <laughs> it's quite a story. I was at the gym. Um, whenever I travel or whenever I'm on visiting family holiday, I, I gym in the morning. I do a little workout. I was skipping. In Somerset West at the Virgin Active, it was on the first floor, and I saw one of those really big muscle men coming up, mm. and I realized in my head, I caught my, I was conscious, and I caught myself judging this person, literally going, that's a bit ugly, because mm. he was huge, and I'm skinny. And then right behind him followed a lady who was built exactly the same way, very muscular, very big and I was lit in Afrikaans I remember going sis like, mm. yeah that's ugly mm. so I formed this severe judgment in my mind and the two of them actually came up to the water canister and had a drink and when I saw the way they touched each other and the love yeah the tenderness it was but like I can get tears in my eyes thinking about it because it was so beautiful and I realized in that moment to each other they're the most beautiful creatures on the on the in the world and they might just be looking and the guy still looked at me and smiled and to this day I don't know if he was smiling because I'm as skinny as my skipping rope or whether he smiled because he was just friendly mm. but that day I shifted I still judge but not as easily you know because you're in the habit of judging but that was a huge shift mm. I got it and I heard it and read about it hear it all and that's also where I learned on that day about opinions are also equal you know I've got a point of view, you might have an opposing one, 
it's just our point of views. Mm. And and often it's it's steeped in in experience yeah. and and learning, yeah. not necessarily traditional learning, but your learning. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a lovely story and a lovely moment. Yeah. So we're talking to this young person who is sitting in an environment and you've said, if your business is not giving oh. you an income, no. That's right. You, you need to walk away. You need to find something else to do. Yes, if it's not at least doing that. But I think, you know, with all these stories, there's so many stories going around of people making a lot of money quick. Those are isolated. I'm not saying those people are doing anything untowards. Like, I'm sure some there are outliers that are lucky have a quick break, um, have a tech idea, sell for billions. Mm -hmm. I think the general journey of business is the same journey of raising a child. It's a 16-year journey. It's, it's not a, it's it's a, a three-year You know, three years old, a child can hardly walk. They can hardly speak properly. Six years, they're going to school. 13, they're going to high school. You know, 18, they start going to varsity. And, and I find it's a more sustainable way for me. And of course, I'll say it because I'm biased to the, our growth journey. Like 13 was going through midlife crisis, just like kids kind of go through a big change. I prefer this experience the way I've experienced it because I think it's building it more sustainably and beyond. So right now where we are, we believe we're at the beginning because mm. we feel that our business is now 20. So he or she, whatever, this little business is ready to take a step into adulthood. We're graduating. Graduating into real business, adding real value, cut its teeth and really coming out of the blocks now. So I think the next decade is going to be pretty spectacular. Still tough, because as adults we know how tough life is. It's never easy. So for that youngster starting their business, if it is at least keeping you in business, stay in business. And Denzel Washington says, fall down seven times, get up eight. Mm. If you want to be an entrepreneur, you're going to fall down 107 times. And you're going to have to get up the 108th time and know that next year you're going to fall down again. It never gets easy. It's life. Life is not designed to be easy. It's a, that's one of those things that, that kind of keeps us off our course because we think it should be easy. Mm. The more difficult, the more you grow. The yep. more challenging, the more you learn. Yeah, fantastic lessons there. Like, I'm going, give it stick. and mm. just. But yeah, step number one, just, just be to a level self-sustainable. So you've described a 16-year journey to a point where you you were bringing in a reasonable amount of money yeah. and now you're 20 and so I'm assuming that things have improved from that point on yeah. but just just talk us through that journey I mean what was it like first five years probably on average 16 hour days six days a week really and and the industry we chose which is a creative industry has become a very marginalized industry what do you mean it's it's um, the advertising industry. What happened in the last twenty years? The majority of the bigger players have sold to international conglomerations. Having done that, I know what happens instantly. It all becomes about the bottom line mm -hmm. and returns for your overseas investors, which means you shift your focus from product to bottom line, mm. which then means that you're not adding the value you should be adding to your client. Now, if you're not adding enough value, your price for what you're offering is going to be driven down. And that's what's happened systematically over two decades. 
So the margin's been driven down. So it's a marginalized business by its own making. I mean, if I was in the client's shoes, I'll do the same thing. Mm -hmm. If you were adding world best in your market and not like just the average, just like in the car industry, you pay more for Porsche than you pay for Tata. So, so I think there's opportunity to lead the agency back to what it was about in the 80s. You know, true value added. The board of companies were aware of the value that it added. And, and that's an exciting vision, actually. I think there's a huge opportunity to be part of that recognition of what this, you know, if you think about it, if, if you had to measure the value, the monetary value of negative news per day, mm. if you take all social platforms, all news platforms, radio platforms, television, and you just measure the negative news by media numbers that we charge to advertisers, you'd find you're probably spending a couple of billion a day on negative news. Wow. The only way to put a positive spin out in the market is through advertising. Unfortunately, 95, 98% of all advertising is pretty bland and pretty mediocre. Mm. But if we can, as a business, start leading the way in doing really amazing, engaging, emotional connecting communication, always relevant to the brands that we're representing, but, but adding creativity to the pot. And that's where Apple is a great example. Mm. The most valuable brand in the world is probably the most creative brand in the world. And again, I'm, I'm intrigued why business people don't see that. I sit squarely in <laughs> mm. with you in that confusion. Yeah. I am so confused by this. And maybe it's just short-terminism. <laughs> maybe it's mm. just people chasing the short-term rather than saying, if we follow this path, we're going to hit a point of exponential growth. And then we're going to be really doing something incredible. But instead, they, they go quarter by quarter, hmm. week by week. And it just, I mean, you're, you're nodding and smiling profusely. I want to make a note of what you said because you are spot on. I couldn't agree more. Short terminism. I love that. I, I couldn't agree more with that statement because reigns of CEOs are mostly short terminism. Exactly. Reigns of political leaders are normally short terminism. Exactly. Four years, eight years max done next one comes in changes everything so there's no sustainability built into the model when we were part of the american conglomeration it was quarter to quarter every quarter with a big fat whip whipping you to deliver quarterly results and no one's planning for the quarter century mm -hmm. so so hence there's no sustainability that's why when i look at our business at 20 i'm enthused for the next quarter century not for the next year or five or ten i'm going how can we be significant on this planet in the value we're adding, albeit as an advertiser, which is the second least trusted job to a used car salesman? Uh, <laughs> and it sadly is. And, and it's frustrating that it is. Yeah. Uh, it's such a wonderful opportunity. It's little wonder why businesses say so much but do so little mm. good in the world. Mm. It's because tenure is so short. Yeah. It's because CEO remuneration and yeah. bonuses are not built in post-tenure. Yeah. Imagine what would, would happen is it, if a CEO was only remunerated, only given bonus based on the next 20 years' yeah. numbers yeah. that came in. That would be a remarkable place. So they, they, that's an interesting thought. I'll park that one as well. I'll lift it from you. But like I'm always, I was fascinated when I had a big turning point in 2007, January. That's when I started changing my life, but like radical. I'm a radical. 
I went on a complete new journey. Mm. But I was interested back then. I became aware of how I was dealing with brand strategy. And the brand strategies would normally be three to five years, max five years. That's the kind of the window you look at, which kind of ties into the four, five-year cycle that we're discussing, short-terminism. Mm. But I also became aware that in my own life, as a micro little business, as a human being, I was living weekend to weekend. So I had no plan beyond the next weekend. And I, I, I was intrigued by that. Why don't I have a, if I'm kind of starting to think about these things beyond, why don't I have a 25-year plan for my personal life? And I put that in place in 2007 towards 2032. I'm living towards that plan. So I put a strategy for my, my own life. But that's th this, this thing about not thinking beyond is probably one of the biggest opportunities to stretch our businesses and to stretch ourselves as, mm. as people, as humans. Is to get out, I love that phrase, short-terminism. If we can get out of that and think beyond, I, th I think you almost... I mean, I'm even thinking now, there was a time when we aspired to being 70 people. And when we, that was when we were like 25 people. We can ever be 70. So we limit our thinking. And then when we found our business purpose, which had a little to the power of N thought in it, mm. I just went 70 to, 70 to the power of 2 is 4,900. Is it? Yeah, it's something like that. And suddenly my head opened up. So it was, why 70? Why not? 4,900 yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. And how would you do that? I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity. I once wrote an article years and years ago, and I used the analogy of a traffic light, a set of robots, and mm. the way that we drive. So I, mm. I like classic cars, and mm. one of my favorite cars is a Mini. And so I bought a Mini. <laughs> In fact, it was my first car. So an old one. Was an old the one. classic yes, one. Yeah. 1969, beautiful little car. What would often happen is that you get someone driving right on your bumper, mm a large portion of the time because the Mini doesn't go very fast. Mm. But what was so remarkable is how often I would then look ahead and see the ro the robot of a traffic light and it's green, but it's so far away that you know that if you push your foot down on the accelerator, you aren't going to get there in time anyway. So just relax. Just take it easy. Hmm. And then how these individuals get frustrated with me, swerve out, put their foot down, get stopped at the robot, and then I would come puttering in next to them in my little classic mini. I love that thought. But there's two sides to that thought. There's a look up, but there's also that you didn't change your pace. So that's something I'm currently working on is to be less impatient. Because mm. the impatience is the car that kind of goes past you. So there's like two sides to that story. The one is look up and look beyond. As I also mentioned in my book, this is a thought I had years ago, but it's interesting that the difference between 100 million and a billion is zero. 100,000 million is zero. There's not a big difference. I know a few billionaires. After the stuff we deal with is the same. It, it is exactly the same. Exactly. There's no difference. It's just a couple of zeros. It's just zeros. I, I there is no difference. And we, we tend to obsess too much about that. Mm. That's why my biggest advice to any entrepreneur business person, someone dreaming of having their own business, is find a greater means beyond money for your business. Find that first. And when I think back, I think we had something beyond money. In fact, I know, for, I know we had something beyond money. Initially. For our business. It's not exactly what it is today. But we knew we wanted to change the face of advertising. And there was no money linked to it. It was an idea. It was called takeaway advertising. 
and we wanted to change the face and we wanted to add value to Joe Public to the man on the street. We knew that. That's why we called the place Joe Public and not mm. Lek Marais. And Lek Marais is quite a funny innuendo to it, so yeah. that would be dodgy. But <laughs> so there was something there unconsciously, and we just refined it a decade later. Yeah, after a, a whole bunch of interesting experiences. After some heavy experiences. Yeah, oh, yeah we were there. <laughs> we gone completely off the plot. Yeah. No, no, that, so, no, <laughs> so the I, first five years was really working very hard. Mm. Amidst the first five years selling the business in order to get international exposure, not for money, realizing that they were just buying our bottom line, that there was some other monetary deal going on behind the scenes, which then meant that the next period was next five years was all being owned by international conglomerations and deep learning that came with that. Mm -hmm. Then losing off the business overnight, I actually retrenched someone for racism. So I retrenched him, he went to work for our biggest client and they fired us. So we lost half our business. Wow. But without that, we would never be able to buy the business back. So at the end of the second five years, we bought the business back and restarted it. So you did have a, a lemonade stand of sorts. You were making lemonade out of lemons. We were absolutely Fantastic. making lemonade out of lemons. And the client that actually came along, we won a pitch on the brink of pretty much shutting down. And that was a non-profit organization sponsored by USAID. And one of the reasons why they clicked with us is because at that stage, we did have one school at a time. We just launched one school at a time the year before. So there was like a sense that we want to do something greater than just advertising. Mm. We want to add value more than just ads. And and that actually pulled us into survival mode. And the next five years was pretty much building it up again. Mm. Rebuilding. Rebuilding it to but year 15. On, on top of incredible understanding and knowledge, which huge. is fantastic. And there, there's an interesting thing again. So knowledge, I mean, there's another form of wealth mm. is experience and all this thing that you learn that you don't put money to. And the last five years has been working with bigger corporations, deeper understanding of how they work, their challenges, having empathy for their systems and processes. Um, and doing our level best to add value, which we often don't do to the level we'd like to, by our own making and by clients making. It's always a two-way street. And I think now going into a phase where we can really add value. Mm. I'm looking at the time. Perhaps what we can do is, let me ask a few questions, if, if I may, and, and let's see what comes out. Cool. Let's start with an interesting one. What would your employees say about you as a leader, as a business owner, as one of the founders of Joe Public, what would your employees, do you think, say about you? The ones who don't work close enough with me would say, nothing's ever good enough. Okay, interesting. The ones who work closely with me would say that I'm inspirational and I do my level best to inspire them to be the best they can be. They would possibly say that, that I always see bigger opportunity within them mm. than they might, may see themselves. Very nice. Those are your employees. Mm. What would your business partner say about you? <laughs> Gareth. You probably sound a bitch. Gareth would say, <laughs> just like my wife would say, they would probably both say, I'm a really, really difficult person to be in partnership with because I'm obsessed. But they would equally say that they love me for it. Mm. So, so that's, they've got a real understanding of me. They know where I've come from. I'm very difficult 
as a person. Bar the lovely facade. It's not even a facade. I'm, like I, I've been coined to be the, the most horrible nice guy. <laughs> so I'm a really nice, loving human being. I come from the right place, but 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 my obsession runs so deep that I can be difficult mm. to be around with. Intolerable. But somehow, somehow my wife's been with me for 32 years and my business partner for 20 years, so it should stand testament that there's something there mm. that's working. Well, I guess it's the question, would you rather be loved or liked? I'd much rather be loved. I, I'd, I'd much rather be loved as and well. And I, I love that. So, so quick note. Sure. <laughs> because... I think that's exactly what it is. I'm not liked by some people. Mm -hmm. I'm loved by quite a few. Mm. I must tell you, I share that experience with you. And this idea of liked versus loved happened when I was doing volunteer work. And I was asked to do training. Yes. And someone came to me and they pulled me aside and they said, Gareth, you're not liked very much. Yeah. But trust me, I can see it. You're loved. Otherwise, these people wouldn't come back to listen to you. They that. wouldn't want to be in the same room as you. They don't want to socialize with you, but they want to hear you. They want to experience you and so on. So, yeah, there's, there's love there. I appreciate that, Em. That's I've taken to really, very, very nice. Yeah, ask me more. I must give you more. You've given me two corkers. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm pleased. This has been a good all-round conversation. Excellent. Okay. What would your worst enemy say about you? I can honestly say, in this world, I, I can't think that I, I've, I don't have enemies. And I've grown through it, but I've been very good at never, ever burning bridges, always having compassion. I can't think of any real enemies that I've got. Um, That's a wonderful thing to be able to yeah, say. Yeah. It's a good answer. Mm. It's a fantastic answer. Do you have a book that is sitting next to your bed at the moment? I've got so many. I'm reading Kayad Langa's yep. latest book. I've got about four or five books. I'm reading the book on Solomon, you know, the world's richest man, which is quite biblical. Mm -hmm. I'm going through a bit of a phase now. I'm moving closer to Christianity. I, I moved away from it. I'm sort of starting to relook at the concept with mm -hmm. new eyes. I, I'm an avid reader. The one I'm focusing on the most is called The Mammoth Hunter. Okay. Because I'm reading it for my son and my wife. So we don't watch television. All right. I watch all my updates on the latest commercial filmmaking in the country on YouTube. Mm -hmm. I'm in touch with everything that's going on via, via the online platforms. But in our house, we don't watch television. So we read at night. And at the moment, I'm going through a phase where my time is quite limited. And my personal reading is taking a bit of a backseat. Mm. So I'm, I'm reading snippets and getting slowly through books. I used to read a lot, but I'm focusing on rather reading to my wife and my kid. No, well, there, there's a, a certain reading strategy that we've heard from time to time. You're one of those that have it, and that, mm. that's reading snippets. Mm. It's, uh, it's taking what you can and then using it yeah. uh, in a particular kind of way. Yeah. Okay. What is the best advice you've ever received? Let's rather say the best advice I've ever experienced. Okay, interesting. Hang on. No, there's two. The best advice I ever received was flying with a person who I view as a mentor of mine. I don't think he would view himself as my mentor, but I've had incredible experiences with this man. And we were flying in his private plane from Bloemfontein to Joburg one night at 10. He works like a machine. And he said to me, money is the oxygen of business. Without it, your business will die. Mm. 
but you don't wake up every morning thinking you must breathe. And that to me was an indication that even at the wealth that he has created, that he has something more profound that is after than money. And Phil Knight, I read Shoe Dog, highly recommendable. So okay. there's one I finished last Thank December because it's holiday, so it's good read for mm -hmm. holiday. Beautifully written. And Phil wrote that, so he's the founder of Nike, but Phil wrote that book past 70. So that's like a lot of wisdom already. Yeah. And, and creating from scratch a company like Nike. And there's one passage, and I think I'm just conscious of it because I've been through the mill on this. And he said, very similar concept. So there's two billionaires that's got a very similar view at a later, and they're both 75 plus. And he said, we all understand that the body can only stay alive and function if blood continuously moves through it. But when you ask you what's your purpose, it's not to make blood mm. as a person. Yeah, and, and the business is exactly the same thing. Money is the lifeblood of a business, but we don't exist to make blood. Mm. Those are my deepest, deepest business learnings. And I think my book the, is pointing towards that insight in essence is to open that door for people to realize that. Because when you do realize that, everything else starts to flow. And that's your experience. It's your, it's your deepest learning and your deepest experience. Exactly. And it's, and it's bearing the fruit that you're describing. It is starting, yes. Fantastic. Two more questions before we part company. Yeah. So exactly opposite to the best advice you've ever received was the worst advice you've ever received? Focus on people's strengths. Okay, that's interesting. That's what comes up for me because I've had another experience I suffered from social phobia for 20 years, 25 years of my career, not being able to speak in front of people, blocking up, choking up, cold, like heavy sweats on my face, that fear of not being good enough and like looking like that view of yourself when these things happen. And I found, I stepped into that fear and public speaking has probably become my greatest strength, mm -hmm. one of my real strengths. So I was very intrigued by this notion of focusing on strength because in my experience, one of my greatest weaknesses has become my biggest strength. I can, I can mention so many examples like that through my experience. <clears throat> so I would say I don't completely buy that advice. I think mm. you'd be surprised the magnificence you'll find in what you think is a weakness. And you, you've hit the nail on the head there for me, what you think is a weakness. Mm. I would venture to say that public speaking for mm. you wasn't actually a weakness, but a, a perceived weakness. That's a, that's a really interesting conversation. Probably no, a whole other conversation altogether. I love that. Okay, we've run out of time, so I need to ask you one more question. Cool. If you could go back in time and speak to the young future CEO, you, the 20-year-old mm. you, what one thing would you say to yourself? It would absolutely be find purpose to your business. I'm very happy with where it landed and when it happened. It's going to keep me young. I'm 50 now. I think if I found that nugget, that kernel at the core of our business sooner, I really believe our business would have been further. But I don't live life like that. But if I had the opportunity to ever go back, which we can't, but if I had, I would point towards greater purpose for myself. I would have wasted a lot less time. This is the kind of learning I'm going to expose my 10-year-old son to. 
He will have the choice to decide whether he wants to or not. I will never force it, but I'm going to expose him to this thinking. I'm certain you will agree. That was a conversation well worth listening to. If you're interested in more conversations like this, you can go to garethtarmstrong.com and you'll find a whole host of other conversations there. My name is Gareth Armstrong and it has once again been a pleasure.